you are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Win Win Podcast. Today's guest, Beatrice or B. Dixon, the founder and CEO of the Honeypot Company, which is a plant derived feminine hygiene brand, spares no words for her innovation and founder journey. I have been so guilty of it myself, really falling into a circle of thinking about what the right jargon is and who do I emulate and who is the woman I want to be and is what am I doing going to get me there? And while I think the consistent push to make it is a huge part of our guest story today, she really exemplifies what it means to be unapologetically yourself in order to get a chance to innovate on your own terms. And I know that's a lesson I can definitely learn and I can imagine a lot of you grapple with too. We talk all about it, but Beatrice literally started her brand in her kitchen and her product can be found anywhere from Target to Urban Outfitters to Amazon to wherever you get your beauty and wellness goods. I love today's conversation because Beatrice dances to the beat of her own drum, and I think whether you're a founder, a student, a leader, or an innovator, you can learn a ton from her. I hope you enjoy today's episode and that you laugh and feel as inspired as you can feel in the vibe and the energy of our conversation. Hi, B. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Hi, nice to be here, Zoya. Thank you. So exciting to have you. And honestly, I will just come out and say it. You are one of the most outspoken, authentic women I have ever had the privilege of following on the internet. And now I guess kind of in real life, your story and the story of Honeypot is remarkable. And it begins in 2012 after you experienced almost eight months of recurring bacterial vaginosis. So let me say that again, eight months. That's that's a really long time to be in pain and suffer, you know, before we get into honeypot and what it does and how it's different. I'd really love to know more about the process of getting diagnosed and the stigmas around bacterial vaginosis and your experience with it. Just to give a little more context, I asked that because we had Natalie Walton on the podcast this season. She is another amazing black woman founder of the app Expectful for expecting and growing families. And she talked about the high-risk pregnancies that black women go through because their symptoms and pains are not taken seriously. So um, really want to hear all about that. And, and if you feel like your diagnosis and journey was perhaps impacted by your race and gender, or if there were just no viable solutions out there for you. I don't think that it was impacted by my race. I, I just think that you know, 2011 was just 2012 just was a different time, right? It wasn't, nobody was talking about it except for people that were meeting on forums to talk about it. Mm. But the crazy thing is bacterial vaginosis didn't just start showing up. It's been around probably since the beginning of vaginas, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just that, you know, as humans, sometimes we forget that and understand that this is just the plight that comes with, with, with having one. You know, it's funny because eight months really isn't a long time. Like like I've talked to women who have had bacterial vaginosis for eight years, 10 years. Wow. Wow. 
and and it's not that it's consistent like it just it just stays it goes away and then it comes back and goes away and comes back and goes away and comes back like that's what it does and it's a hard it's a hard infection to get rid of because it's a bacteria that really 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 thrives off of the pH balance not being in check right mm-hmm. and that's really the thing that it's all about if your pH is off even by a little bit when you get your period, your pH rises because your blood is alkaline. And then when, when your period is ready to go off, it's supposed to correct. And it's supposed to go back to that to the normal pH that it would be. Only if it was off to begin with, it's going back to wherever it was. And if, and if it wasn't in the right place, if, if you're prone to having bacterial vaginosis or yeast or whatever, that's why it comes back around that time because it doesn't self-correct. And did you learn all of that from having it, you know, happen to you in a reoccurring manner? Or did you learn that after you launched the Honeypot Company? No, I learned it while I was dealing with it. And while I was launching Honeypot, mm-hmm. um, I just wanted to understand it. And I think I think naturally I'm a little bit of a healer. You know, I thought that I wanted to be a doctor many years ago, but then I realized that I really didn't like school that much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I probably wouldn't make it trying to get, you know, trying to finish med- medical school because I'm just the kind of person, if I'm if I'm not vibing with it, I can't do it. It's a little bit of, I learned it because I was dealing with it. I was researching it. I'm deeply connected to it in a way, in a very spiritual, esoteric way. I don't really know how to explain. So it's really easy for me to wrap my mind around, if that makes sense. No, and, and it makes sense because from what I know is that you actually had figured out the the recipe for, for your product because you had a dream that your grandmother handed you a piece of paper and said that it would solve your problem. So, you know, you wake up from this dream. Do you decide I'm starting a company immediately or are you saying, well, let me just test out how real this is? <laughs> well, she just handed me a piece of paper that had a list of ingredients, right? And so when I woke up, I wrote it down. I worked at Whole Foods at the time, so I went to work, bought all the ingredients, did all the stuff, came home, created a formula because, you know, I had to create it still. And then like four to five days later, because I had BV at that moment, Mm. you know, I I was having an infection right then. Because prior to that, every time I would go to the bathroom, I would be like smelling myself and like looking at the paper and like seeing what's going on and what color is my discharge and what does it smell like? And, you know, that was my constant PTSD around what me and my vagina were going through, you know, Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. noticed that I wasn't doing that. And then I noticed that I didn't have an odor. It's like four or five days later after I made it like the very first batch and started using it. And I noticed I didn't have an odor and I noticed that I didn't have like the same type of discharge that I was having before. And I was like, oh, shit, I think it went away, you know, mm-hmm. and then and then it made me go back to the dream. It was like, I don't know how to explain it, it was like a, in a movie how um, like you, you have like this flashback or something. And, and immediately I was like, oh, this is what I do now. And, and before that, you mentioned that you were working at Whole Foods. Uh, did you have other roles or did you have kind of like a career direction outside of the doctor thing that you were hoping to go in? Yeah. Yeah. I was a pharmacy technician for nearly 10 years. I worked in wow. all types of pharmacy technician 
jobs. I worked in hospital. I worked in retail. I worked in chemo. I worked in Ivy rooms. I worked in narcotic rooms. Like I, I did everything, mm-hmm. you know, and that's how I knew how to kind of do the math to create the formula from the ingredients that she gave me from that training that I had, you know, mm. and then I, yeah. And then I worked at Whole Foods. I had a cleaning business. I had an organizing business slash cooking business slash like whatever you need business. Cause I just needed to survive. I've done a lot of things, man. I've done whatever I, I've had to do to survive. Right. Like I, the one thing about me, I'm not going to not have food and I'm not going to not have a fucking roof. Those are my yeah. things. Right. And I'm going to have clothes on my back. And at this point in my life, I have to take care of myself. I have to take care of my mom, my family. So, like, I'm going to do what I have to do for myself to make sure that me and my family can survive. So, really, you name the shit. I've probably done it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, that was a very humble way of saying it because you're one of the first 40 women of color to raise $1 million in venture capital. So I think to that point, obviously, you have this go-getter attitude. You're unafraid to do your own thing. And so as as you develop this product and, and start using it, how quickly does it go from, you know, a kitchen experiment to a packaged product that needs whatever approvals and is able to be commercially sold? And, and what what was your kind of approach for, for growing that? Kitchen to customer was, was like three years, mm-hmm. right? Kitchen to like bottle, like a proper bottle with a label and a, and a UPC code and all that stuff, like two years. Mm-hmm. You know, because I because I didn't I didn't sell the product in the beginning to I didn't sell it. I gave it away mm. people would buy it like people started buying it. But I, I didn't have we didn't have a website. We didn't have like a store we were working with or anything. It was just like I would meet people or I had friends and I would be like, yo, I have this thing. I have this product. Would you be open to trying it? A lot of people were willing to try it. So in a way, I was doing like my own clinical trial, you know. And so how quickly at that point did you say, I'm a founder, I need to do founder things, product market fit, business model, revenue, venture capital? Because I mean, that that is very different than kind of your humble beginnings with this product. You know, I never really thought about it like that. I always thought that I was doing founder things, right? I, I didn't know about raising money. My brother's my co-founder. Like we, you know, I would always say to him, I remember I would be like, bro, we need some money. And he was like, we don't need no money yet because you don't have a reason to raise money yet, you know? And when Target came knocking, he was like, now we need to go find some money. And I'm, I'm grateful for him because, you know, I had my founders hat on since the beginning. That That's not even a question, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you are, to me, the biggest founder in the very beginning when it's literally like nothing, it's like thin air and you got to pull the shit out of your head and figure out a way to get it into something, right? In the beginning, it used to be like a pickle jar or a salsa jar. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what the fuck to put it in. So I was just putting it in anything, right? And, but to me, that was the ingenuity, the, the, the work that you have to go through to get you to even where it is now, right? So to me, that was founder hat, right? Was it sophisticated founder hat? No, it was fucking school of hard knocks founder hat. And to me, there is no difference, right? No, I agree. Um, you know, so, you know, but when when Target came, I'm so grateful for them 
it was a big deal for us. And and that was the first time we ever really raised money and, you know, did all the things, right? And so the four days later when I decided that this was what I wanted to do, make this my life's work, that was the day that I put my founder hat on. Yeah, no, 100%. It mm-hmm. makes me think about the innovation process because obviously innovation looks very different at different stages of the company. So you're right. At four days, your innovation process versus when you have like a multi-billion dollar retailer yeah, selling your stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like a different different innovation game. So what, what has your innovation process has been like? And I guess the bigger question is like, how has innovation changed for you throughout since the beginning to now, nine years later? Oh, wow. I mean, it's it's changed dramatically, right? There's a whole team for innovation now, you know? There, mm. there, there's a whole process for it. There's, a, there's red, yellow, green, right? Red means we have, there's orange, like, the, you know, there, there's all these just different phases. There's timelines. There's lawyers involved, FDA attorneys. There's clinical trials involved. There's obviously our manufacturers, our chemists, our IP mm-hmm. attorney. There's so many, there's so many levels to it now because we understand what it takes to launch a product. And so, and that's really developed over just in the last year up until within, like I should say in the last couple of years, we really didn't have a, a very, it was a process, but it wasn't formalized because we were just moving, man. We didn't have we didn't have the money to hire the people to know what needed to be done, but we also knew that if we didn't if we didn't run, even though we didn't fully know what we were doing, right? Which you pay for. Right? Totally. Like, you you pay for that shit later because then you find out what the mistakes are and then now you have to fix the you got to fill the holes, right? But we but but again, that's the beautiful part about it. Right. You, you just you just keep swimming. You just keep moving and you just keep your head down and you just keep focused and you stick to the methodology. You, you stick to how you're to how you guys said you were going to do it, you know, and you stick to the timelines and you stick you stick to the process. And that's where we are now. And that and that is a little difficult. Right. Because when you're not used to having one and you're able to launch 20, whatever 30, you want. 40 products a year. Now you're doing way less than that. 10, 12, right? 10, 12 is still lots of fucking products to launch, you know? And it's a beautiful part of the journey um, because there's intelligence there and we're learning as we go. Yeah. And, and I think it's it's really interesting that it was Target that came knocking on your door and so early on. Why do you think that was? And when they came knocking on your door, what sorts of questions were they asking you? Like, where did they challenge you? And where did you need to, for the lack of a better word, get it together? Oh, man, we needed to get it together everywhere. (laughs) Um, And everything about it was a challenge because we had never done anything that big before. I had experience meeting with buyers and launching products into stores because that was actually one of my jobs. Right. I, I became a broker. I became a sales, a sales manager for a startup, for a food startup. And I was, I was doing all of that while I was doing Honeypot, which was good because it gave me some experience in how to ask the questions and how to pitch and how to not accept no and all that kind of shit. Right. So that wasn't the hard part. The hard part was like all the things that happened on the other side of that. Like lots of things have to happen 
you have to have a manufacturer, you have to have, and not just one manufacturer, but and typically your 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 co-man or co-contract manufacturer has relationships with all the raw material suppliers and all that stuff. But like there's so many I's and T's that need to be dotted that you just had no idea even fucking existed. And then, you know, so in my training, my goal was always to get to, to the yes from the retailer. But when it was applied to Honey Pot, I had to get to the yes with the retailer. But then I had, once the yes happened, you had to execute. Then we had to deliver on what yes meant. That's where shit can get a little hairy because like, oh, like, oh, like I, <laughs> I hadn't done all that before, you know? But yeah. that's, that's cool. It's, it's, it's fine. What you have to understand about a retailer is it's not their problem, right? They're not going to pay you until the thing ships. They're going to pay you on terms. Right. So you have mm-hmm. to figure out how to deliver it for, to them with your own cash. And um, and that is a lot to bite off when you don't have any money in the bank. And when you're raising as you're doing, it would be like trying to change the, the tires in a Formula One race without the car coming off the track. That's right. what it is like. It's crazy. It's gnarly. And the desperation that happens, which is, which in my opinion is good for you. If you're going to start a business, because you have to understand some in, in business, you really have to earn it. That doesn't mean that everybody has to earn it because there's people that didn't earn it. Right. They, if things were just given to them, but that wasn't my journey, my journey, me and Sai had to earn it. And that was just how the shit shook out. And I wouldn't change it for a thing because it taught us how to be business owners. It taught us how to be lean. It taught us how to build a real business. It taught us how to deal with no. It teaches you how to be strong. And, you know, some may say that that some of that was because of our race. Some of that was because, you know, I'm a woman. Some of that's because, we're like I said, we're black. Some of that's because of whatever. But to me, it really doesn't matter (laughs) what it is because I know that running and operating a clean, effective, good, lean business is hard no matter what color your skin is. No matter what, yeah. You know, and, and run, raising money is hard no matter what color your skin is and whether you got a penis or a vagina. I don't care what you say. I am grateful for everything that happened exactly the way that it happened, even though there was lots of bullshit that happened, but what can you do? Yeah. And like you said, you are doing a million things at once. So I think there's no world in which, unless everything was handed to you, there's no world in which that was going to be a, a walk in the park. Right. But I guess think talking about the juggling, the the venture capital raise, as well as target, I think you had a huge advantage in, in some sense, because you did have a huge partner like target bought in and then to go to a venture capital firm and tell them I have target interested in me. I think that's already like, like a seal of approval. But our, our first raise was like a family and friends round. Mm-hmm. And our, our second raise was with New Voices Fund. How involved were you in pitching? How did you split it up? Simon, me and Simon were pitching. I did a lot of the the, the full-on delivery of the pitch. Sai mm-hmm. was full-on delivery when it came to everything finance because he's, mm-hmm. he at that time was our CFO. But I was I was the story. I was 
but it, but it made sense because it was my vagina. A hundred percent. Damn straight. Yeah. But I, I guess, I mean, there are people that literally spend years preparing their pitches. You obviously, like you said, you were doing things, you were, you were both in the kitchen, both doing the manufacturing, talking to Target. So, you know, how did you figure that out? What did you find was kind of your tip or secret as you went into pitch? What do you think helped you really land that, that uh, venture capital funding? We were in a place where the company really needed to grow and, and, and there was opportunity there, like the soil and everything was ready. It, you know, mm-hmm. it was, the growth was there and, um, and, and, and we really needed to get to the next place. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and so when we were able to actually get that venture capital deal, it, it was simply because it, it was the right time, right place. You know, but I think one of the most important things when you're pitching to understand and remember is that you have to go in there being yourself. You have to be willing to to be nervous, but but you have to dress like yourself. You have to talk like yourself. You have to be passionate. You have to believe in what you're in what you're doing because this is going to be the thing. If done right, if delivered well, if said money is gotten right. This is going to be what feeds you, what clothes you, what gives you a roof. This is what's going to provide other people roofs and clothes and food and resources, right? And cars and and all the things that they need to survive and take care of their families, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to go in there knowing that that is the fucking intention and you cannot deviate from that, right? You have to know your business like backward forward you have to know you want to begin with the end in mind. Be a big dreamer, big thinker, right? Don't a lot of people think that they should raise less money, right? When in fact, what it takes to raise a million dollars is the same that it takes to raise a hundred million dollars, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same, you know, it's it's the same energy, it's the same pitch, it's the same delivery. Now, where your numbers are at what type of business you're in, what market you're in is going to sure. dictate whether that 1 million or a hundred million can actually go. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because, because it still is numbers. Right. And the numbers got to add up, but the shit don't add up, then it's not going to make sense. And people are going to laugh you out the room. Right. Totally. So, you know, but, but, but there is also asking for too little. When you ask for too little, that communicates. Right. So it's really important to make sure that you're asking for what you need. And and I think another huge thing is you have to know that you're not going to get exactly what you want. Mm-hmm. The art of both of those deals on each side of, the, of that table is the investor is not going to get everything that they want and you're not going to get everything that you want. And the investor is probably going to get more of what they want because you're the one who's in need of the fucking money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're not paying them right now. (laughs) That's okay. In the beginning, it hurts bad. Right. Like I can say that because I've had that experience where you feel like you've given away too much or you've sold Mm -hmm. much. Right. Even in those circumstances, if the resources, if the money wasn't there, we wouldn't have been able to get to where we are. Right. So you just swallow it and you accept it and you keep moving and you make the pie as big as you can make it. So that when the, when that exit time does come, because that's another thing, when you're dealing with venture capital, private equity, there's got to be an exit. 
hundred percent. That's how they make money. They're not interested in you being a fucking legacy business and owning this shit for the next hundred years. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that that's some crazy shit anyway. Right. Um, I don't understand the, the sexiness behind that. Like who wants to work for the next hundred years? Right. Like that's crazy to me. Aligned. You know, <laughs> but no, thank you. But yeah. If you're my employer and you're listening, I'm totally kidding. I'll be there forever. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I, I don't want to work forever. No, I, I totally, I'm with you. I'm with you. I think something else I wanted to, to ask you is that your branding is says made by humans with vaginas for humans with vaginas. Sounds amazing to me, but I'd, I'd love to break that down. Why do you think it's important to have the people who are actually suffering from the problems and the pain points you're solving for innovating in this space? And do you think it's possible to succeed without the people who are actually suffering from the problems being the creators of the product? I think that it is possible because the things you have to realize about Honeypot is Honeypot is not just for people that are suffering. Mm. Honeypot is actually the opposite of that, right? Mm. Honeypot is abundant. It is not lacking. Um, It's actually, I like to look at it as beautiful skincare, beauty, for your vagina, for your vulva, mm-hmm. right? You know, in the beginning, it was about the problem, right, that I was having. And I like to share that story with everybody so they can understand that, like, this shit didn't, this shit, like, started in a kitchen, right? Yeah. Like, it's not, like, th- this is grassroots, right? That's why that message is there. But honeypot is not just for people that have issues. Honeypot is for all the vaginas whether they're happy, sad, melancholy, you know, normal, not really thinking about it, just, you know, whatever. Honeypot is for all of that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I do think that it is possible to create skincare and to create businesses without having suffering for whatever it is that you're solving for. Mm -hmm. I do think that it is possible because some people just have an itch to do to make something beautiful. Totally. Right? And honestly, that is my driving force. You know, I'm the person, I actually have two jobs. I'm the CEO and the head of innovation. And as the head of innovation, my constant is I want to make very beautiful products. Honestly, you know, I love that. But yeah, I, I think that it's possible both ways. I think, I think that it's great when a human makes a product from an issue they were having where they couldn't solve for it any other way. I think that that's dope, but I also think it's dope for the human that's like, you know what? I'm seeing this everywhere. And I think that I want to try to take my, have a take. My stab at it. Yeah. 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 No, a hundred percent. I, I really love what you were saying about making beautiful products. And I guess I really want to end this podcast with, with a little bit of a crystal crystal ball of what those product uh, products are going to look like in the future, as well as where you as a human and a CEO and a founder will be. So with that, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? One month from now and one year from now as a product in even 10 years from now, right? I see us as just, I see Honeypot as the marketplace 
that is just as synonymous as all of the brands that we grew up on, right? Mm-hmm. Like I see Honey Pot as synonymous as Dove Soap, as, as synonymous as, you know, as Summer's Eve, as Vagisil, as Always, as Kotex, all the industry leaders that even if even if, if those weren't created, would I have even had the wherewithal to understand what it would be like or why to create a Honey Pot? I'm incredibly grateful for all those brands. And my goal a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, 100 years from now, I probably will not be owning this company physically myself, right? But I but I will hopefully still be involved and I will want to continue the legacy of beautiful, efficacious, clean skincare that creates conversations with mothers and daughters, that creates relationships with humans in their in their in their vaginas and vulvas and really their whole body, right? That is the point of our brand. It's to create a very beautiful relationship with your body, with your vagina, with how you feel about it, with how you care for it, with with how you with how you take care of it. So a month from now, a year from now, we have our heads down. You know, we spend more time at work than we do in our personal lives. And that time is spent working to deliver the best in class products. We want to do well. We want to be a beautiful brand and a responsible one. And I feel like we are one, you know? And so that's where we have our head at. That's what we're doing constantly. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Definitely check out the Honey Pot Company. It's available at literally every retail ever because B is a badass. Um, and thank you. We really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you and all the best. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.